What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Wherever we are, it seems that the hot summer days filled with sun and blue skies that we once knew have changed. We've got some nostalgia for what once was, and that's what happens as we age, too, and remember long-lost times. Here to talk about it is an expert on senior care, Iris Weichler, whose book is called Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents, published by She Writes Press. Welcome, Iris. Great to have you with us. It's really wonderful to be with you, Diane. Thank you. I I wanted to give a little background. Um, You know, Role Reversal is a comprehensive guide for the 45 million people currently taking care of family members who need assistance. And I would argue that for some of us, it's it's those of us in our generation who are experiencing illnesses, um, chronic illnesses and require care. Certainly with COVID, we've found, you know, there's a lot more um, chronic uh, suffering going on and loss. So I think that this um, this book, it's written to help caregivers understand how to cope with and overcome overwhelming challenges faced by caregivers. Uh, Ms. Weichler shares her personal experience caring for her beloved father and his story with her 40 years of expertise as a patient advocate and clinical social worker. The result is this book offering invaluable information on topics ranging from estate planning to grief, building a support network, and finding the right type of care for your aging parent. Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents is the book. Iris, I I noticed that in your subtitle, you first mentioned taking care of yourself. How does that figure into the equation? And why why is it so hard for us to do that? That's a great question. Uh, I would say this, Diane, one of the biggest mistakes that caregivers make is not taking care of themselves. And a part of that is the majority of caregivers, 65%, are women. And women are notoriously bad at taking care of ourselves. So what happens is we focus on other people and we ignore the signs that our body and our mind is telling us that things aren't going well. Um, caregivers start experiencing when they, when they experience burnout and some of the symptoms of burnout are, uh, stomach conditions, um, uh, trouble with sleep behaviorally. We get more irritable. We get more angry. We get more short tempered. Um, and what happened is interesting. You mentioned the pandemic. What happened was that number from 45 million went up to 53 million. And the average age of a caregiver went down. Um, The younger folks stepped up. uh, And also part of that was because the people that were helping us be caregivers were not available to do it. And the people that were caregivers might have gotten sick. And so COVID turned everything upside down in that sense. And one of the other things that happened with COVID was 
it used to be 15% of caregivers reported symptoms of um, psychological or physical or emotional uh, changes and as a result of caregiving, and that number went up to 24%. Sure. And it's entirely understandable. You've got a different, you know, another layer of um, suffering and helplessness, which you know, is the reason that we do have trauma and burnout is because we're helpless to really make a change or do anything that makes a substantive change. And I'm glad to hear you supply these statistics because I had a feeling that things had grown exponentially this last year. And, you know, I also think about the catch-22 of uh, people, young people who are having children later in life. Uh, I know you wrote a book on infertility. Sometimes there's um, issues with becoming pregnant. And so therefore, you know, staving off pregnancies is, is, is necessary. So there's a sandwich, right? There's people who are literally taking care of kids and also taking care of elderly or even, you know, near contemporaries who have gotten ill it really seems as though your book is is a timely guide, and I wondered if focusing on burnout um, is part of your um, work with your patients and how that has grown in terms of your practice. Absolutely. I think burnout, is, as I said, I think it's universal. Um, some people are a little more attentive to themselves, and it is a focus of what I talk about. I think another thing that happens is Caregivers are really bad at saying no when um, the person they're taking care of is a loved one or a parent. It can be really hard to say no to our parents. So if they ask us to do something that we know we can't do, we we still do it knowing that we can't. Um, and that's that's one of the issues. And the and the other thing is for caregivers, I think sometimes asking for help um, in some people it, it feels like there's a sense of failure that you're not able to do something you should be able to do. And um, people have such uh, sometimes unrealistic expectations of what they, they think they, they can do. And when those expectations fall short, they feel guilty and they say, oh, there's something wrong with me. When in fact, lots of times uh, things change in terms of the person you're taking care of and the demands grow and they get different. You feel you, you can do it and, and everything changes. Uh, that happened with my dad. My dad uh, was really, really healthy and he had a, um, he, he got pneumonia. And then after he got pneumonia and he was in the hospital, they found that he needed a pacemaker. And then he got a pacemaker and then he found, they found that he had swallowing issues. And that's so, such a common scenario for people that are older. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a symptom that happens or a diagnosis that occurs and it creates this cascade of other problems and and it becomes so overwhelming for the caregivers. And um, when you're a caregiver, too, the other mistake that a lot of caregivers make is they don't incorporate respite time, which is just allowing themselves and giving themselves permission to take a break um, because that's so important for the caregiver and it's important for the person you're taking care of. Because as that caregiver, if you burn out or you feel physically or mentally ill, then you you can't do the kind of caregiving job that you want to do. 
Right. It's like oxygen first on the plane, right? Remember planes? But, you know, when you, yes. when you have a child, you know, you put the oxygen mask on yourself first because the, you're no good to the child. You're no good to the person you're caregiving um, unless you do mind yourself and your and your needs for rest and, and for just a mental break. I think it's interesting what you were just saying about guilt, because I think that is a huge component if not in not saying no. And also the sense of, you know, our generation, I think, we're, are much more um, used to the idea of being in control. I think we, th- men or women, you know, I think we all think we should be able to affect things. We should be able to make a difference. We should be able to find a solution, find a cure, find a this, you know. And then when you talk about this cascade, um, you know, that all just really brings it home in a way that it's really hard to cope with. I, I also wanted to really talk about the difference between the generations. Your dad was a member of the great generation coined by Tom Brokaw. And this is the, the generation prior to the baby boomers, but it's the generation who, for whom self-sacrifice was um, a given, um, service to the country was a given, and also just a sense of maybe not... Um, you know, not wanting to impose, not wanting to question authority around medical issues, um, you know, and how has it changed with the generation? I wonder if we're better able or less able um, to cope. Uh, that's a great question as well. And and by the way, I love your analogy about oxygen. I think that's just perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think I think one of the things that happened in COVID turned things upside down uh, I think you're right. That generation was all about self-sacrifice, and um, there was a sense too that they they handed down to us. Certainly, my mom and dad did that. We want something better for you. And I do find differences when I talk to my 21 year old daughter about my life and about my my parents' lives. I think I think that generation. Um, is angry at those of us in the sandwich generation. They feel that part of the reason things are happening in the world that are not good is because we didn't step up, we weren't honest, um, we weren't aware of what was going on, or we denied what was going on. And I think they're much, much more honest about that. And they, and um, I think there's some anger from that generation that we didn't do more. And so they're more eager to step in and step up and talk about things that bother them and and try to initiate change. Well, I was flabbergasted at how honest your dad was. Um, meanwhile, you were the luckiest person alive, Iris, to to have a dad that, you know, really made it to 97 without a lot of health issues. But, you know, when it came time to talk to people um, in the nursing homes or, you know, he, he, he went right ahead and said, well, um, I've I've, I've lost my wife. My wife died several years ago and I've got this woman, Anne, and she's got to come. She's got to be able to stay with us. And the room has to be pretty soundproof because we might make some noise. And, you know, you were, you were mind boggled by it. But I mean, I also thought, you know, here, here is also to me an indicator of that generation, not mincing words, just spelling out what you need and not trying to, you know, dance around it. And, you know, I really, I thought that his approach to his his life, his issues, um, 
you know, accepting your mother's passing, it all seemed much more uh, confrontational, more honest in a way. I mean, confrontational in a way of just dealing with it, just deal with it and get on with it. Um, not not trying to, you know, compartmentalize things so that they don't hurt as much. So I think, I think you're right. Um, I think the way that, that we deal with things might be um, a little less forthright, but your book, Role Reversal, is exceptionally um, head-on and methodical. Do you think that that's the fact that it's so easy to read and so factual and so, um, yeah, giving you information that you need, practical information, is that one of the reasons why it's been such a success because you really have enjoyed um, a wide audience with this book, and it seems as though it's a guide that many of us need. Yeah, uh, thanks for your comment about my dad. I, I did feel like the luckiest person on earth. He was an amazing guy. And, you know, in answer to your question, when I was writing the book, I originally was just going to write a memoir about him, because, as you said, he was a member of the greatest generation, but by society's standards, he was not exceptional in any way. He was a high school graduate. He was he was basically a junk man. He was a scrap metal dealer, and in spite of that, he took four kids, and we sent us to college and was a loving father. And so what, what I think one of the things that happened for me was when I was pitching my book to different publishers... I got the response, well, you're not famous, your dad's not famous, people aren't going to care about his story. And that was a real worry for me. But I also felt his story was one that would touch people, and and much to my utter joy and amazement, it did. And I think a part of it is my book's different because it includes his voice and mine. And so you get the dual perspective that I didn't find in any other books when I was doing my research I always do a lot of research before I write a book because it seems silly to write something that's already been said. And so I like to find a unique angle. And then what happened was I used my dad's life. Uh, there are universal themes for people that are caregivers for their for their parents as they age. And I just used what happened with my dad's life when he had to move into extended care when he got ill. Um, I addressed that personally as his daughter, but then I also addressed it professionally as a, a licensed clinical social worker for 40 years so I could give information to people about how to cope and very practical guide to what they can do as these crises and situations arise. And I think that touched a lot of people. That That's the response that I've gotten um, from people. And, and some people had said they hadn't found that anywhere else, and that that felt really great because that's that's I really believe in the power of words, and and one of the goals in my writing. This is my third book, and I really believe that um, if people are given information and they they it gives them a sense of empowerment, and they can survive situations that feel and life crises that feel overwhelming and just. Um, they feel so alone, and I want to take those feelings away. When I was working at, at the hospital, I was a medical social worker on the rehabilitation unit, and uh, I, I was walking by one of my patients' rooms in one day, and his family was outside the door just sobbing. And I looked in the room, and, and a resident was there just doing an EKG test, just a nothing just a standard test. It was no clinical symptoms or anything. And I went over to them and I said, why, why are you upset? Why are you crying? 
And the resident hadn't taken two minutes to tell them what he was doing. And they assumed because he was hooked up to that machine that he was dying. Oh. And that Awful. was that was a moment for me that I'll never, ever forget. And I thought, oh, my God, if we just became a little more aware, the pain and anxiety that people feel in crises can be overcome. So I, from that experience, I ended up writing my first book, which was um, called Patient Power, How to Have a Say During Your Hospital Stay. And I've done that all the way through in my articles and my books. Um, when I, I wrote a book about infertility because I experienced that uh, riding the infertility roller coaster. And again, a moment I'll never forget. I got a, a, a email from a woman in Sri Lanka and she told me that her book, my book made her cry. And my first reaction was, Oh no. And then she explained that no one in Sri Lanka talked about infertility and right. she felt totally isolated and alone. And she felt, after reading my book, that she understood that what she felt was normal. And I, the book gave her words to her feelings and helped her understand them and helped her cope. And I think those were two incredibly valuable lessons for me. It's true, Iris. And you talk about the fact that you are an advocate, a patient advocate. And I, you know, at first, you you know, at first the question becomes, well, why do we need an advocate? We're supposed to be getting care, um, you know, aside from, you know, mistakes that happen. And, and, you know, there is, there are, you know, we're human error in terms of doctors, nurses, and all the personnel coming in contact with you or with your father when they're in the hospital or my mom last year before she passed away. Um, but I think we've got, we've got just two minutes, but I, I want to just ask you, why do we need an advocate? Aren't we supposed to be being taken care of? Gosh, I wish that was true. I wish our healthcare system was perfect and that, <laughs> that what we needed we could get and that we, we could all afford to have the top-notch care. But as we all know, that the reality of that is not true. And I think COVID really highlighted that. They highlighted very large gaps in our system, um, particularly on, in terms of home care. We need an advocate because many times we're so sick that we can't advocate for ourselves. That's number one. Um, some of us are in denial about what we need or, and what's going on with us medically or emotionally or physically. And sometimes the diseases that we have affect our ability to assess that. And right. so we need, we need a, an objective, informed person who cares about us and wants to help us get the best possible care and treatment that we can to be there and stand by and, and fight for, for our rights uh, and for what we need. And I think that's usually important. That's the piece about caregiving, why so many people burn out. If you break it down, there's there's so many pieces to it. There's the physical care. There's the emotional support. There's the medical advocacy. There's the um, getting shopping and taking care of your home and taking care of your physical needs and making sure that you're you're healthy and you're, you're going to the doctor and that you're getting your meds. There's a, a whole host of different areas where a caregiver has to be an advocate. And few of us have all of those skills, which is why it's really important in terms of caregiving to have more than one person on your team. There's legal questions that need to be answered. There's financial mm -hmm. questions that need to be answered. And so um, it's, it's yeah. really important when you have a loved one that needs that help to have a, an advocacy team, someone that has knowledge about all of those areas so that they yeah. can make sure that you have the, the, the most optimal care.
Well, Iris Weigler, we are really enjoying um, speaking with you. And it's uh, a revelation, I think, to realize exactly how many moving parts there are to caregiving. Um, as you say, legal, medical, emotional, you know, your own life that you have to keep maintaining. We're going to take a break right now. But when we come back, we're going to take a look at whether or not we are any different, as this generation is any different, when it comes to things like surrendering our independence. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Iris Weichler, author of Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents. Iris, I think it's time for a little candor here as members of the baby boomer generation and even you know below us coming up millennials you know i think we approach this with greater expectations maybe of care also expectations that we're going to be able to do a certain kind of job um we're harder on ourselves maybe the other thing that i really wonder about and why i think it's so brilliant that you did tie in your dad's voice in this story is that none of us are quite prepared when a parent says to us oh, but I'm not ready to go into assisted living. Meanwhile, they've just left the dinner from last night is burnt in the microwave. The car keys haven't been able to be found and maybe shouldn't be found. Um, they've lost their wallet several times. They are not quite sure which day we're on. And it's getting really, really unwieldy to help them in a way that is meaningful day in and day out. They've got, you know, a line of pills, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, a.m., p.m., can't remember to take those. And yet, when it comes time to, to broach the subject of, well, do you think you, you might be open to having more care? It's always resistance. I guess this, this is a two-part question. You know, you dealt with it yourself. What was your best method? And second part is, are we going to be any different? <laughs> this I wonder. 
for my daughter's sake, I hope not. I hope that I will be different. What you're talking about is having the caregiver conversation and and the whole notion of role reversal. It's so hard because it's it's the the, the issue of independence versus the, the need to have help. It's the issue of parents denying their physical, mental, and emotional abilities. And it's also an issue of boundaries and privacy. And I'll tell you what I'll tell you what happened with my dad, and that what happened with him was he 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 felt he was fine, and I saw him enough that I knew uh, exactly how he was doing. And I visited him one day, and I noticed his balance was worse, his ability um, to remember things was a little worse, and he couldn't walk as far. And I he trusted me enough. I said, I think we need to see the doctor, and. We went to the doctor, who was actually my doctor, someone I'd worked with for 30 years at the hospital. And the doctor would say, how's your walking? My dad would say, great. How's your um, how's your memory? Oh, it's wonderful. And then I'd be behind shaking my head no to give him a real picture. The doctor asked my dad to take off his shirt to take his blood pressure. My father had a watch on his wrist and a watch on his elbow. And I looked mm-hmm. at it and I said, Dad, why are you wearing two watches? And he said... I'm so glad you brought me here. I've been looking for that watch for three weeks. The doctor and I looked at each other, and we immediately went to the emergency room in the hospital. From there, he had an MRI, and we learned he had a brain bleed, and he had brain surgery the next day. And so um, what that illustrates is that our loved ones aren't always aware of what they can and can't do. And so it's up to us. To, to be there to begin that conversation, the caregiver conversation. And it's so hard because it reminds us of our own mortality. It, it makes us realize that they're changing, that their health is beginning to deteriorate. And it's it's a real loss. We're losing the person that we knew and loved. And that's the, the first loss. And, and then the second, of course, is when they die. So the thing to do is to have this conversation, the caregiver conversation, when people are healthy, when you know that the comments that you're getting and the insights that you're getting are accurate, and because the worst thing is to react during a crisis. So I always talk to people about thinking of it as a collaboration, not a confrontation, because what you're describing, that scenario where you, you know your parents need help and they say, I am fine, this is my house, I've lived here 50 years, I'm not going anywhere, and you're terrified they're going to fall down the stairs or worse. Um, so you want to you wanna start from a place of love, too, that's the other thing. You want to explain them why you're having the conversation. You want to say to them, I, I love you very much. I want to be here for you. I want to make sure you have a quality of life, and I want to make sure you're, you're as healthy as you possibly can be. And I want us to do that together. And I want to know what your thoughts are about your, when you age. How do you see it going? What do you, what do you want? And that's, that's a gentle and loving way to open that door. Um, and I think that can, that kind of a conversation can, can really be preventative in terms of the scenarios that you're describing. So you want to know, you want to ask questions like, as you get older, if, if you do find that you, that you do need help getting up and down the stairs or you do have a medical problem that we're not aware of now, are you thinking that you need someone from the family to take care of you or thinking that you'd like a healthcare professional to come in or 
as you get older, I know that you've got a bad hip and you're in a lot of pain. And when you're climbing those stairs, it seems that it's getting trickier for you to do that. Do you have any thoughts about if, if a medical condition arises where you can't do that, what would be the next step? Those kinds of questions. So you're not saying you're in terrible shape and you've got to get out of here. You're 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 making decisions together and at a time when um and it's coming from a place of love. And lots of times you start that conversation and the door just slams in your face. Your well, your parent may say, I, I don't even want to think about getting old, I'm not gonna discuss it. That's fine. But the door is open and you've opened it and you've let them know that you're gonna be there for them. And there'll be a time in the future when something does come up and you'll be able to revisit that conversation in a and I think mm-hmm. in, in a healthy sort of limelight. Well, I love that you use collaboration as the key phrase um, rather than confrontation because, you know, you know darn well that we're going to feel the same way. Oh, no, I'm not ready. I No, oh, no, that slip and fall. No, no, I'm not ready. Um, no one wants to surrender their their freedom. No one wants to surrender their agency. And I also wonder, you know, do we have this idea of assisted living facilities being these horrendous, horrific places where people go and are forgotten when, in fact, they're science has come a long way and their ability to make environments that are actually friendly, social, conducive to activities and actually prolong the lives of people um, because of being, you know, more active, um, you know, a lot of that also, you know, has changed and evolved so that, you know, as you're starting to have these conversations, as you're opening this door, as you say, um, I think, you know, with love, I, I really, I think also maybe, you know, you frame it and you also go and see places. Um, but I thought the other thing that was really interesting, what you said about starting to be grieving and facing our own mortality as you see apparent age, clearly, you know, the minute you start to realize they're slipping away, you start to grieve even while they're still alive. It's it's a very strange twilight. Um, and it really, it starts to affect you in terms of how, yeah, how you feel, you know, how you, the loss starts to sink in. And, and in some ways you begin to love them more than you ever could possibly love them before. Um, you know, as you start to, to feel this slipping away. Um, and I wonder though, Let's be candid. I mean, has this whole practice, has this whole incredibly well-researched and practical exercise of writing this book made you better as a person preparing for your later years, your seniority? Absolutely. I, well, both my professional experience and my, and my personal experience. Um, and the other piece of it is... I, I, I took care of my mom and dad, but I also took care of two friends that were my age who were single and didn't have family, and, and their family of choice was their friends. And so we gathered together to help them die with dignity. And um, one of the the, thing, the things about caregiving that I think is really amazing is you can have these moments of intimacy that are so beautiful. Um, where you, you get really close um, and uh, reminiscing about the past can be a beautiful experience and things moments like that um, are so are so precious uh, and of course there are challenges as well but 
what I've I've learned is that I I, I want to have I, I've already started to have the conversation with my daughter actually, um, and I, I I'm much more sensitive to um, to what kind of burden I would put on her. Particularly, she's an only child too, so that's another piece of it for me as well. One of the the, the things about us boomers is, and we're all facing now is. Thanks to the wonders of medicine, we're all living longer, and med- medications that they've created have helped us live longer, but that doesn't also necessarily uh, give us a, more of a quality of life, and so that's one of the lessons that I've learned, too, is working with my patients and then writing the book and then my, experience, my personal experience caring for, for the people that I did. Well, you're astoundingly... You're astoundingly sensitive. I, I don't think you've gotten, you know, careworn by your work. If anything, I love the fact that you, you know, tune into these moments of intimacy and how caregiving is this intimate act. I mean, here we are, two pandemics in that I can remember, HIV and and those who took care of friends who were suffering with HIV. And now, you know, the pandemic and, and other chronic illnesses that seem more prevalent you know, it isn't as uncommon to actually lose a contemporary. Um, and I think that the, those that ability to really let your guard down and really open yourself up in caregiving is one of the priceless opportunities in life to just show love. Um, and I, I think I, you know, I hear you say you're having this conversation with your daughter, the only daughter. I was an only daughter. Um, many only daughters are also 30% of them, you quote in the book, are living far away from their parent. Um, this also affects things. But how does she respond when you try to initiate these kinds of important conversations? She, she's scared because she doesn't want to think about losing me. And she, she'll say that. She'll say, she'll kind of smile and she'll say, oh, mom, you're going to live forever. And so I don't, at that point, I don't, you know, I don't push the issue too much. I drop little seeds along the way. She's, she's been there and seen us lose, lose our friend. Um, she's seen me lose my father. She's seen my husband's father die. So that has been a part of her world. That was a part of my world when I was growing up. Three of my parent, grandparents lived in our home and they all died. And so... We're luckier in the sense that we're more comfortable about talking about those things than many other people who are really terrified to think about getting ill or terrified about the notion of death and dying. So I'm, I move very gingerly with her, um, and but I, she does understand that, that that's an area of expertise for me, and she understands that. Um, it, it's a conversation that we are going to continue to have as my husband and I grow older. Thank, thankfully, we're, we're in pretty good health right now. Um, but I think when the time comes, she'll know that I'll consider her her needs as well as my own. And that's a message that is really important for me to give to her. And also, I've already in- initiated support for my nieces and other people in my family. So she she knows she's not going to be alone in terms of taking care of me. And I think that's really reassuring for her. I think it's huge. And in your book, I thought one of the 
one one of the great examples of the practical approach you took is asking the question, who in the family is going to become the main caretaker? Um, and these are, you know, there's a lot of considerations, you know, it's who's going to be able to balance between taking care of parents, work, commitments to your immediate family. Um, you say that different careers create different demands in terms of time, stress, and travel. I know a couple of your siblings, one was living in London, um, one was in California. You and your sister Susie were were right there with your dad, but there can be a barrier um, between siblings in the family relationship. Sometimes you know, those of us that are only children, it's not such a disadvantage all the time because we don't have those kinds of frictions and dynamics that um, you know might cause uh, tension in terms of being able to figure out who's going to be prime caregiver because it's, it's us no matter what. Um, or if there's issues in our own personal life to deal with, financial problems, relationship problems, time pressures. I think it's brilliant that you really um, brought these issues to light, these questions to light, um, you know, choices about where you decide to live and build your life, um, your relationship with your parent, and what it's been historically. So, you know, coming from a loving home, you might have had different, you know, insights into that. We have to pause um, for another commercial break, but you've been really, I think, therapeutic in the in the hands-on approach that you've taken, and also contextualizing the way your dad, you know, viewed the world. Um, I wondered too about, you know, do you do we think that it's, you know, how do we take those steps to build our own patience with our own parent um, so that we are there for them so that we don't end up brewing conflict over needs that are growing and our own despondency over over losing them. Um, and I wondered if some of these questions, we've just got a moment before the break, but I wonder if some of these questions prompt therapy for people or the joining of group therapy sessions. I would say absolutely. We bring our parent-child relationships into our caregiving role. And if you have unresolved issues as a child with your parent, you can be rest assured they're going to bubble up as you become their caregiver. There may be guilt about things that happened as a child that your parents did or didn't do. Um, they weren't there in ways that you wanted. Um, and there may be uh, sibling relationship issues like you described that were unresolved. And all of that, all of that has to be considered and it does come up. And I think it does bring a lot of people to that therapeutic moment where they need counseling and help to understand what role that plays and also how to cope and where to go from here. We're talking with Iris Weichler, who is the author of Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents. And Iris, you know, citing this need for these resources and how to access them. That's really, in a big way, what your book is all about, in addition to the very personal life story of you and your dad and your sibling and your mom as well. And these life passages that you've witnessed and shared with us, we really thank you for it. We're going to be back in a moment, and then we'll continue talking with Iris Weichler. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice. 
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Iris Weichler, and she is the author of Role Reversal. We've just been talking about how it's important to have guides and resources because we've got to stay proactive on this, right, Iris? I mean, here's you describe the situation of caregiving when we ourselves could be feeling burnout, so therefore how to take care of ourselves first. And then our aging parents, and that happens simultaneously, of course. Um, but also death itself, the passage of a person's life in front of us. When that happens, we are at our least able, we have the least amount of capacity to deal with the things that we then have to deal with, which are estates, which are funerals, which are you know, desires of what to, what is to happen to remaining property, um, what's to happen, you know, with, with inviting people. And all of it can be overwhelming as well. You talk about grief and you talk about being proactive. You know, what's your, what's your kind of take on it now? What's your advice um, now that the book's been out for a little while and has been really embraced by a lot of people as a helping guide, what's your take on it? Are people getting more proactive? Are they seeing that we're not going to live forever and it's time to really organize ourselves this way? Um, I, it's going to be interesting to see how COVID has changed how people approach death and think about it and, and grief and loss. And I would say, I would say this, if you would ask me that question before COVID, I would have said that it wasn't moving in, in the direction that I hoped that it would. I, I think that it's, when someone's dying, it's, it's obviously such a painful and difficult time. But one of the things that I learned from working with my patients and in my own private personal experience, people, you, you have to go with where the person that's dying is at. And it's really hard to do that. But sometimes people really want to talk to you about it. They want to talk to you about what their life meant. They want to talk to you about what needs to be done when they're, when they die. And they want to talk to you about what kind of ways people, they want people to remember them. I had some of the most beautiful conversations I've ever had with, with a friend of mine who I helped, I helped die. Um, 
and die with dignity. And also what my role was, his brother didn't want to let him go and kept, he had a, a very serious aggressive brain tumor and he knew he was going to die. And he was, I'd have to say, and I've been with many people that died, he was the most at peace with the notion of death of anyone I'd ever met or worked with personally or professionally. He saw that his time on earth as beautiful and wonderful, but he uh, imagined the time after that as something quite glorious. And and so what I did was I helped him to share his feelings about that with his brother, and initially his brother didn't want to hear about it because he didn't want to think about losing him. But they had the most amazing moment together. I was I was with him when he was about to die and I knew he was going to die and I called his brother over and it was just it was a privilege to be with him and I know that sounds odd when you're you're standing next to someone that died but the love that they felt and the understanding that they had was something that I will never ever forget. And I think it's really important to have those again have those conversations um to to have a greater understanding about the person that you're going to lose, where they're at. Um, when I took care of another friend, she she loved the beach and the hospital that she was at. The hospital I worked at, we would the hospital gave us permission. We would take her to the beach, and when she got too sick, again she was someone that was dying of she had ovarian cancer. We we collected a bunch of sand on the beach and. Uh, we put it in a box, and then we got shelves, and we got like a little a little uh, palm tree. And when she was too ill to physically go to the beach, she would say, I want to go to the beach, and we would pull out that box, and she would put her fingers in the sand and close her eyes and imagine she was there. And again, it was it was such a beautiful moment, and she she helped us create it. She said, I really love the beach. I'd love, love to be there, even though I can't physically be there. And so... I would encourage people to be less afraid of starting those conversations if if you think someone is open to it and try to get a sense of where your loved one is at and then proceed accordingly. If your loved one's not willing to think about it or talk about it, that's fine. Um, but down the road, as their medical condition changes, there may be opportunities and um, you want to take those opportunities while you can because it's not going to be there when they're gone. Well, particularly you know, in a sudden death, you know, if you have an illness and you can be a witness and you can, as you say, it is a privilege. I I feel very much the privilege that I've had in, you, you'll never forget it for the rest of your life if you've sat with someone who has passed. And um, I, I do consider it a complete honor that someone shares that with you. And if they share what matters to them with you, then all the better. Um, you know, the trouble is with, with COVID and, and people being taken all far too soon, there's no time. There's no time to plan. But as you say, maybe there'll be a kind of reaction to that and that people realize, hey, we're not going to be here forever. First of all, carpe diem, let's figure out what does matter. And secondly, let's share it with some people so that, you know, we do have people around us and, you know, people don't have to fear, you know, dying alone um, and, and, and having, you know, having more of a, a network, if you will, to, um, to build up support around us if, if and when those, those circumstances occur. When we talk yeah. about grief, yeah, do you want to add a comment to that? Yeah, I just wanted, I did want to say one thing to that. I totally agree with everything you just said. 
And there are those people, and I, I experienced it with my patients where they were near death and their loved one was in the room with them all the time. And then the loved one went out to get a cup of coffee and that's when they died. And so I, 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 in my personal and professional experience, I do believe there's some, some, I can't quantify it element where there are moments where I, I believe that a person has decided this is the time I want to die and they didn't want their loved one to be in the room when it happened because they felt it would be too painful and so they waited till they were alone. So there are those those people that again it's it's a very personal choice about how how you're going to die and when you die and how you experience it but I bring that up just because I want people to understand that there's a multitude of ways that people look at the notion of death and how they want it to happen and what and and what they want to be occurring around them. I thought one of the profound things that happened two times in your life, both with your mother and your dad, is that you spoke to them and told them that it was okay for them to let go if that's what they wanted to do, that you gave them permission to go. And it's, yes. such, it's such an open-hearted, generous thing to say, Iris. And in both of those instances they did let go. What do you make of that? Well, uh, the situation with my mother was so remarkable and it so, sort of reinforces what I just, the story I just told you. She was in the hospital and she was very near death and the doctors told me it was early in the morning and they said, oh, she won't be alive, uh, you know, by noon. My brother at the time was in California. My sister was in New York and I ran to the phone and I called them and I said, get on a plane right away. And then I went to my mother's bedside and I said, they're on their way. And wouldn't you know it, she, she not only stayed alive, but when they arrived, she, she was alert. She was oriented. She talked to them. They said their goodbyes. And literally when my three siblings and I and my father were around her bed after she knew everyone was there and she got to say what she did and my, my loved ones did as well, she died. A very peaceful death, surrounded by, by our family, um, and I, I think I think that again she she wanted to say goodbye to my brother and sister before she let go and died. And once we were all there, we we said to her, "If you, if, if you want to let go now, it's okay." And um, I'm so grateful that we had that moment with her together, and that we all got to to say goodbye. Same happened with my dad. I, I as you said, he, he his health was so bad at that point. I, um, they put him to bed, and I whispered in his ear that if, I understand if he wants to go. Um, I, I want to let him go. I want him to be at peace. And it was a 15-minute ride home from where he was to my house. And as I was walking in the door, the nurse called me and said, you better get back here right away. And by the time I got back, he, he had died. Um, it was very interesting, too, with my father um the day before that happened, and my father, again, mentally, he was definitely getting more foggy, um, but he uh, he was sitting, I was sitting with him, and he said that he needed to go to work, and I said, why do you need to go to work, Dad? And he said, I need to take care of your brother and your sister and you, and even in, in the moments before he died, he was thinking about taking care of our family, and so I said to him, you know, you've worked a long time, and you've had... And you've done such a wonderful job of taking care of us. I think you deserve a rest. I think don't think you have to go to work today. 
And so, again, very meaningful and beautiful moments for me. And I was with him where he was at the time. He was worried about his family up until the end, and I wanted to reassure him. So um, Mm -hmm. those moments can live with you forever. They give you juice forever. They give you energy forever. And it's, it's, it's powerful. And I think that it's two of the same things, you know, the embarrassment of not wanting to die in front of someone, but what a role reversal, a classic role reversal when your child says to you, it's okay, dad, you don't have to go to work today. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can take a rest. I mean, really, that is an exquisite thing. We, we don't have much time left, but I, I wondered if there was anything else that you'd like to add to the story of, you know, about death and grieving. Has it changed for you in the sense of, you know, the stages of death or is this really like a kind of stages of grieving? Is it really much more circular than we ever think? Um, and do we ever get over it? And are we meant to get over it? You got a minute to ask to answer that incredibly profound. <laughs> I mean, do we are we meant to get over it, or is it, is it just something yes, we? Way, no. in, in the sixty seconds we have left, what I would say is this: my metaphor for it is, I think of it as like being in the ocean, and when you first lose someone, there's those giant waves, and they knock you over, and you, you're trying to come up for air, and you can't breathe, and it feels like you're going to die. And then what happens eventually is you learn to understand the waves and you're able to read them and so when a wave comes um you're you're able to stand up and you're going to be okay but every every now and then a rogue wave will happen an anniversary a birthday or someone reminds you of the one you lost and and a wave will come up and maybe knock you on your butt but with time the intensity of those feelings does dissipate a bit certain time days or moments are harder than others but you understand that you will be able to get through it. It's not going to be easy. The pain remains, but the intensity changes. That's what I would say in 60 well, seconds or less. <laughs> that, that was okay. But that was beautifully spoken. And um, Role Reversal is the book, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents. Iris Weichler is on social media at Facebook, Iris Weichler, um, and Instagram, uh, Weichler Iris, Twitter Iris Weichler. I, I think it's it's very it's very worthwhile to get a hold of this book, both for ourselves and our own planning, and for what we might have to be dealing with in terms of our family members. Thank you so much, Iris, for being with us, and it's been a oh, real such pleasure. Such a pleasure, Diane. Thank thank you so much for having me. And we I did really- want to say that uh, on my Facebook and Twitter page, Monday through Friday, I post articles about caregiving and aging um, so okay. people can get all kinds of information. It's a great resource. That's brilliant and very generous as well. Thanks, and thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, and to our executive producer, Robert Cialino. Most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and that you too might have a role reversal. Till next week. Thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 